You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Welcome back for our fifth of six lectures. And having gone through a lot of detailed stuff on the nature of human knowledge in the last lecture, what I'd like to do is to consider some of the implications of this account of human knowledge. And to begin once again by comparing Aquinas' view with what he takes to be Plato's view, especially on the implications of human knowledge, of a specific kind of account of human knowledge, for a view of soul and body. For it's not only the case that Aquinas attributes to Plato the view when it comes to knowledge that the mode of being of things is the same as the mode of being of our knowing, so that just as our knowledge is universal, immaterial, and immobile, so too the objects are. That's one Platonic teaching that Aquinas disagrees with in great detail and vehemently at certain points. Another Platonic teaching has to do with the relationship of soul to body, and we've already seen that for Aquinas and Aristotle, soul is to body as form is to matter or as act is to potency. Now Plato's rival account of the relation of the intellectual soul, to be very specific to the body, is this, that the intellectual soul is related to the body as a mover, as mover to thing move. So that what the intellectual soul does is to order the body, to command it. Right, to rule over it in the sense that it moves it in certain directions. Now, one of the reasons that Plato opts for this and not something like this view seems to be his view of the disparity between the intellect and the body. Right? Now, we've already noted that for Aristotle and for Aquinas, there is a difference between the senses which operate through bodily organs and the intellect which operates freely of a bodily organ, even though it needs sense to present objects that it might know. But on the side of its operation, not on the side of its object, it doesn't operate through the body. So Aristotle and Aquinas are in some measure of agreement with Plato on the difference between knowing and sensing, and hence the difference between the intellectual capacity of human beings and the sensing capacity and other lower capacities that we have. Plato, by treating the intellectual soul in relation to the body as the mover of the thing moved, namely the body, seems by this to underscore and safeguard the difference and indeed the distance of the soul from the body. Right? Since if the intellectual soul is the form of the body, it is intimately united with the body as we noted at the end of a few lectures ago, it becomes difficult, and we're going to come back to it again, that it becomes difficult to conceive of how the intellect could actually be immaterial and perhaps separate from the body if it is united to the body as its form. So the advantage of the Platonic view is that it gives some sort of account of how the soul can be related to the body. United might be too strong, but how it can be connected to, related to the body, without thereby seeming to diminish the distinctiveness and separability of the intellect from the body. A consequence of this Platonic view is 
that the intellectual soul need not be the substantial form of the body. That one can have several souls, right? Because as Aquinas explains on Plato's behalf, if the relationship of the intellectual soul to the body is one of mover to moved, there's no obstacle to asserting intermediate movers there, right? I mean, if I am the mover of this plant sitting on this desk here, I can be the mover of it whether I move it directly with my hand like this or whether I move this entire desk and thereby move the plants, right? Or whether I took a stick and moved it or my pen and began to try and move the plant with the instrument of the pen. There would be an intermediate mover, but I would still be said to be the ultimate mover of this object. So there's no objection on this view to positing intermediate souls between the intellectual soul and the body. Because you can have intermediate movers between the ultimate mover, the efficient cause of the movement, and the thing moved. So Plato doesn't have to say, indeed resists saying, anything like what Aristotle and Aquinas want to say about the intellectual soul as being the immediate substantial form of the body. So on this Platonic view, we might be able to say that there are different kinds of soul present and that we are living by the lowest vegetative soul. We are animal by the sensitive soul and that we are finally at the peak of our being. We are human by the intellectual soul. Great debates in the Middle Ages, flourishing in Aquinas' day, about this, about whether there could be multiple souls or forms for the human body. And this view had the advantage, not just for Plato, but for many other Christians, of seeming to safeguard the distinctiveness of the intellectual and volitional capacities of human beings. And notice that it's easier to prove, on this basis, the incorruptibility of the intellect, and hence to get a philosophical argument for the immortality of the soul. And to many Christians, this was very important, as it is for Aquinas. And they thought that the Platonic view with this multiplication of forms or souls was a safer way to go than to seemingly immerse the intellectual soul in the body by making it the form of the body. Now Aquinas wants to raise certain difficulties or problems with this view. The first question that he wants to raise about this view, this is the basic question that he expresses in a number of ways. What makes this human being one? What unifies it? What makes it one thing rather than multiple things? And he proposes the possibility, well, maybe it's the body that unifies all these things, right? Since all these souls seem to be in one place because they are souls of this body, at least the first two souls, and the intellectual, if not the soul of the body, is somehow operative in and with this body, even for Plato, right? There's a kind of coincidence of some sort of the intellectual soul with this particular body. So what makes it one? Could it be the body? And Aquinas says, no, it can't be the body. And he makes a kind of startling claim here. He says, it's not the body that contains the soul, but the reverse. The soul contains the body and makes it one. Now what he means by that, when he says contains, is that the soul is what configures, permeates, orders, organizes the material body in the way it's organized and configured. So that it makes it to be one sort of thing 
rather than another sort of thing. So we can't simply attribute the unity to the body. This would be merely a kind of accidental unity of all these souls happening to be at this one place and time, right, in this body or operating with respect to this body. So it can't simply be the body. And the following problem arises on this view according to Aquinas. The problem is this, that if this soul is the first actuality, notice that I'm slipping back into that language of the definition of soul from the very beginning of Aristotle's De Anima, that it's the first actuality of a natural organic body potentially having life. If this is the first actuality of the thing that makes it be, then all subsequent forms or souls would seem to be accidental impositions upon that original being, right? Remember that we distinguish between first actuality and second actuality by saying that the first actuality, the soul informing the body, makes the thing to be, to exist, as a certain kind of thing. So if it has merely a vegetative soul, it exists as a plant. If it has a vegetative capacity, and finally the highest power is a sensitive soul, then it exists as an animal. If it has those two capacities plus an intellectual capacity, then it exists as a human being. So this first actuality is what makes the thing to exist in the first place. Subsequent, second actualities, are particular actualizations of particular powers. And indeed, these are the vegetative, the sensitive, and the intellectual in our experience and in our being. These are specific powers or capacities for us to engage in certain kinds of activities with respect to certain kinds of objects. So these are not for Aquinas separate souls. And indeed, if we were to say they were separate souls or separate forms, then we would have to say that these subsequent souls or forms were accidental. They were not of the essence of human beings. And so there would seem to be not here any sort of true unity at all, but merely a unity of mover and move things, intermediate movers and finally the ultimate move thing, which would be the body. So it would merely have that kind of unity. And Aquinas wants to argue there's a much stronger unity of intellectual soul and body than Plato can conceive of here. Notice, furthermore, that the statement, man is an animal, indeed the definition that Aquinas gives following Aristotle, man is a rational animal, that that would be true of human beings only accidentally for Plato. Man is rational would certainly be true. But the animal part, since that resides in an inferior, separate form or soul, to say that a human being is an animal would be merely accidental. What a human being would seem properly to be is this intellectual soul somehow awkwardly lopped onto, on top of, these other two souls. So we seem to have no real unity for the human being or the human person at all on this. And Aquinas wants to argue with Aristotle that this is a proper definition. But a definition gives us essentially what the thing is, not what it is accidentally. And this is the genus for human beings. Human beings are part of the genus animal. The specific difference, that is the characteristic that sets them apart, the essential difference that sets them apart from all other animals is this rational capacity. So the intellectual or rational soul is the form of the body, the immediate form of the body, that which gives being to the body and makes this composite to exist in actuality. So that alternative view, which is, I hope you'll admit, Plato's view, while I think Aristotle and Aquinas point out deficiencies in it, 
there's something compelling or persuasive about it if we start out with a certain view of the relationship of soul and body, or if we want, if that's our primary concern, to safeguard the separability of the intellect, you could see why this would be a persuasive view. And so we have, yet again, to come back to this question of the relationship between soul and body in Aquinas in some more detail. And I want to take up two topics at this point on soul and body in Aquinas here. And the first one has to do with not just the fact that the intellectual soul is intimately united to the body, is the form of the body. We've been stressing the status of the intellectual soul, and not so much the status of the body, except indirectly. Well, if you look at it not from the perspective of the intellectual soul, starting with the perspective of the soul, but starting rather with the perspective of the body, we can see that this claim about soul and body unity for Aristotle and Aquinas has interesting consequences for how we ought to think about the body. And the consequences are diametrically opposed, not surprisingly, to this sort of separate, segregated view of these multiple souls that we saw Plato tending toward the vegetative, the sensitive, and the intellective. On this view, it's not just that the intellectual soul needs the body, is properly united to the body, but that the body itself, even our lower powers, are somehow transformed and elevated by this association with the intellectual soul. So that on that platonic view where you had these separate souls, you could argue from that that the vegetative capacity in human beings would be identical to that in plants. And the sensitive capacity in human beings would be identical to that in animals. And then we would simply add on top of that the difference of the intellectual soul. Well, this argument for the unity of body and soul in Aristotle and Aquinas is an argument for the body actually being restructured in a way so that it is open to the intellectual capacities of human beings and transformed appropriately so that our bodily capacities are not exactly the same as that of animals. We have a couple examples of this. Aquinas will talk about that we share with the animals a kind of limited power of memory and we share with them a sort of power to think about sensitive particulars. Think about is too strong, but to sort of compare sensitive particulars. So we share with animals capacity of memory. That is, animals seem over time to recognize individuals that they have experienced before and things that they've experienced before. Animals also have what Aquinas calls an estimative power. That is a power to compare particulars of sense. And so this helps to explain how dogs, when they smell things, can prefer one sort of food that they like to another, right? There seems to be some level of comparison. And so Aquinas will even go so far as to say that higher level animals have some capacity to think, at least analogously. It's not a full capacity to think, but that animals are close enough to us that they share some of the same sorts of capacities that we have. But when Aquinas talks about memory and this comparative power, this estimative power, in human beings. It says, look, in animals, these are the result of instinct. Even if we use analogously the term thinking with respect to animals, because they seem to have a capacity in their imagination to compare things and to sort of instinctively prefer one to the other. This is not cooperating. These powers of memory and estimation are not cooperating with, are not open to the intellectual insight and judgment of the human mind. Whereas in human beings, they are. So that the memory is 
more refined in human beings and capable of a sort of wider range of things being held in it and of comparing them. And this estimative power in human beings, Aquinas actually says in humans, we do have memory, of course, but we don't have what he calls this estimative power. Instead, we have cogitative power. This is a power that seems to be lodged in or operative in our imagination, our senses, that enables us at the level of sensible particulars to compare them. And in a way, Aquinas will talk about this cogitative power as preparing the phantasm for the insight of the intellect. Now, of course, it can't be the case that there's a sort of artificial division here, right? And the cogitative power itself, when the senses are sort of collating the similarities and setting aside the dissimilarities, the accidents of sensible singulars, the intellect is already somehow operating there. And indeed, the very word cogitative calls to mind thinking, right? Not just sensing. So that there is in this cogitative power, it seems, in human beings, as opposed to the estimative, instinctive power of animals, there is an illustration, a manifestation of the intimate unity of, of the intellectual soul with the body, right? So that the lower powers in us are actually raised up so that they can cooperate with the intellect, so that the body is not even exactly the same for human beings and for animals. Aquinas takes up in a couple places the question whether the human body is appropriate, is the appropriate sort of body to be united to the intellectual soul. And in his response to this, he of course says, yes, it is. But I want to focus on two sorts of observations that he makes that, although we're not going to get into it in detail, are actually reinforced in contemporary work in phenomenology of biology, phenomenology of the body. But Aquinas wants to talk about two things in particular. He wants to talk about the sense of touch. That's the first thing. And then secondly, he wants to talk about our upright posture. One of the objections that he raises whenever he takes up this question of the appropriateness of the bodies that we have for being united to an intellectual soul is that it seems that the human body is deficient in lots of ways. After all, there are lots of animals that are faster, can get food easier, more easily than we can. There are animals who can survive cold and rain and deprivation more easily than we can, right? Camels can go a long time without water in the desert. And human beings seem to be especially deficient in body of all these skills and powers and capacities that various lower animals have. And so the objection is given that, well, human beings should be chock full of all these powers in their body to indicate the superiority of the human body in its union with the intellectual soul to all other animal bodies. And Aquinas will say, well, that's not right. And it's not right for two reasons at least two that have to do with touch and upright posture. The first argument that Aquinas will give is that the body of human beings is not simply made for survival, but for being particularly attuned to the external world, and especially, ultimately, for knowing the world, for contemplating and wondering about the world. And because of this, the body has to have what he calls an equable disposition. And this is especially seen in the power of touch, as he sees it, which is a medium between hot and cold, and which is a medium between the harsh or the rough and the smooth, so that our sense of touch is especially refined. And this notion of touch, you might recall that when we were finishing up the end of last time, and I was talking about the mind grasping the thing, and talking about the concept as the thing conceived by the mind. And I use the comparison there to the way in which the hand grasps 
an object and in a way takes on the form, at least the shape, of the thing. It's physically impressed upon the hand, upon the sense of touch in the hand. And this is seen to be a kind of sign of our intellectual nature, that our sense of touch is the sense of the receptivity and is analogous in a way to the intellect grasping things. Notice here, this is something of a reversal of what we typically think of as the highest sense. I mean, in certain respects, Aristotle and Aquinas will talk about the sense of sight as the highest sense. That is, it's what enables us to contemplate things directly, to look out upon the world. But in other respects, the sense of touch is what gives us the analogy for thinking, that the way in which the hand grasps something and, as it were, takes on its form, is similar to the way in which the intellect apprehends and takes on the form of the things that it knows. The other response having to do with touch, not just that we couldn't have claws for hands, right, because that would take away from our sense of touch. That's a very important matter for Aquinas. But also, the sense of touch provides a kind of key to our relationship to the external world in the sense that touch is called, or the hand especially, the organ of organs. So whatever we may lack physically in comparison to other animals, the hand and it not being claw, and this will lead into our discussion of upright posture as well, but the suppleness of the hand, the dexterity of the hand, is something that enables us to make other tools that supplement for whatever deficiency we may have vis-a-vis -vis other animals. And so that what looks like a deprivation on our part is actually the possibility of a much greater power over the external world. So that that objection does not seem finally to take seriously the suppleness and creativity of the human hand. It's the organ of organs. It can create all sorts of other artificial instruments that can be used by human beings to ward off evils and to better their lives. The second point that Aquinas will want to bring up here is this notion of upright posture. And notice that that's connected to the notion of touch. For animals who walk on four paws or who have very limited sorts of hands, hands that seem to be designed primarily for swinging or grasping simply for survival, grasping food or swinging from branch to branch, etc. There might be a sort of middle here between a paw where someone is simply on all fours and the human hand. But the upright posture is what enables the hand not to have to function as a paw, right? Not to be limited to the ground so that the hand can be all about us grasping things, pointing to things. And this seems to hook up with the general function of and importance of our upright posture, right? Which is that we have, in contrast to the vast majority of animals in the animal kingdom, we have a different orientation vis-a-vis -vis the world. And this not only has to do with the sense of touch, but it also has to do with the rest of the senses, right? We have to have senses that are ordered not simply to mere survival, to fending off foes and getting food, but we have senses that are ordered to higher things, to knowledge and to love. And Aquinas notes, since these senses reside mainly in the human face, sight, taste, smell, and touch is there too, although it's primarily in the hand, and hearing, all of these have to do with the head. So long as the head is structured vis-a-vis -vis the body so that it is near the ground and only taking into account proximate things, it seems to be focused merely on survival, defense, attack, eating, etc. But our upright posture removes those capacities of sensation from the ground and opens us up to seeing things on the horizon, to looking upward 
towards the heavens and pondering the order in the stars and the universe, etc., and the beauty of it, so that our upright posture, our very bodily structure, is in a way befitting of our intellectual nature. And Aquinas will go so far as to say here that we can also see in this in the mouth, right? Whereas with other animals, the mouth is very close to the ground and seems to be designed entirely for eating. Right? Our mouth seems to be peculiarly designed for speaking, which is the rational and social element of human nature. That speech is a kind of embodied rationality, that there is reason, judgment, apprehension that is revealed to the senses through speech. And so this capacity of speech, and we need, I mean, Aquinas is confirmed in this by detailed work in evolution and biology, right, where there are significant differences between the structure of our jaws, the texture of our tongues, the organization of our teeth and the mouth, etc. That all of these seem to serve the function, not just of our being able to take in food, but of speech, right, which is the preeminently embodied rational capacity of human beings. And so the sense of touch, upright posture, Aquinas wants to point to these as indicating it's not just the case that the intellectual soul itself, because of its weakness vis-a-vis -vis the angels, the intellect doesn't have the capacity of the angels and couldn't know immediately in the way the angels know or the way God knows. It has to know through the body, rather indirectly, by gathering things from senses. It's not just appropriate on the side of the intellect that it be united to the body, but this particular kind of body is appropriately united to an intellectual soul, since it is not simply for the sake of survival, but is also for the sake of knowledge and communion with others and communion with nature. So this is a kind of remarkable statement here on Aquinas's part, not just of how the intellect is united to the body, but how that transforms and elevates all the lower powers and indeed the very physical structure of the body in relation to the intellect. So on that point, we can see that this notion of soul and body, the intimate unity of them, is taken very seriously by Aquinas as it was by Aristotle. Having talked about that, I want to turn to the more difficult question, once again, of the separability of the intellectual soul from the body. What I've just been emphasizing is this natural, appropriate union of soul and body. I mean, it's to speak metaphorically, for reasons you'll see, but it seems to be an appropriate home, a natural place for the soul to be in the body. And that's speaking metaphorically, right? Because the soul isn't in the body as in a particular place. It pervades the body as an organizing and vivifying principle. And it's not in a house the way I'm standing in a building here physically. But the part of the comparison that is important there is that it seems to be appropriate, that this seems to be the home of the intellectual soul for it to be in the body. And indeed, this is in keeping with that general definition of soul that we discussed a few lectures back from Aristotle's De Anima, right? It's the first actuality of a natural, organic body potentially having life. Right? Now, the peculiarity of the intellect as form of the body is that Aquinas argued that the intellect has an operation in which the body doesn't share. We immediately have to couple that, as we know from numerous statements that we've already made, saying that the intellect cannot think without the phantasm. And we noted earlier, and I promised we'd come back to it in some more detail, that this seems at best paradoxical, at worst a flat-out contradiction. Now, the straightforward, simple way of reconciling these two claims is to make the following distinction, as Aquinas himself does. He says, well, on the part of the operation, 
the intellectual power itself, its activity, it's separate from the body. It doesn't operate in any material organ. On the part of the object known by this immaterial operation of the intellect, the intellect does indeed need the body and the phantasm that is presented thereby. So if we distinguish on the side of the operation, from the side of the object of intellectual knowledge, then we seem to be fine. But there is something peculiar about this, right? I mean, after all, in every other instance of a composite of form and matter, soul and body, the soul is, or the form is, as it were, exhausted by the material capability of the thing, right? It's only in human beings with the intellect that we have this question about immateriality and separability. So there is something very peculiar here. What do Aquinas and Aristotle want to say about that? They want to say, yes, that's right. Human beings are peculiar. It's why there is a fundamental difference between understanding animals and plants and the way they behave in the world and understanding humans. Right? That there's something perplexing, something odd about human beings. Not finally for them something contradictory, but something peculiar about this intellectual soul being united to the body. Aquinas sometimes likes to use this image that he gets from various Neoplatonists, that the soul is, as it were, the horizon of the spiritual or the intellectual and the material. That it's on the horizon. And so the, the human soul, as it were, unites what is proper to what's higher and purely spiritual, namely its intellectual capacity, with what's lower. Right? I mean, there's a great late medieval and Renaissance tradition of speaking of human beings as microcosms. That is, in the human person, we find a recapitulation of the whole of nature, the whole of the created universe. We find all of that which is in the lower physical world united to what is in the higher spiritual and intellectual world. And this kind of microcosm of human beings that human beings represent. Now, this peculiarity, it's no contradiction. We've given a distinction, operation versus object, that enables us to say both that the intellect has an immaterial operation and hence is separable from the body, and that the intellect needs sensible objects in order to have an object to think, to focus on. No contradiction. In fact, by asserting both of these, holding on to the seeming paradox, while using certain distinctions to avoid any hint of contradiction, what Aquinas thinks that he has done is to capture the complex unity of human life, the peculiar status of human beings in the entirety of the cosmos. That these two claims put together crystallize what it is that makes human beings such peculiar members of the animal kingdom. Right? But we are nonetheless members of that animal kingdom, just very peculiar members. And we are, in fact, unlike any other being in the natural world, microcosms of the whole. We recapitulate in ourselves the whole of the natural world. So this view of the intellect as both needing sensation, phantasm for an object, and as being in the nature of its operation, immaterial, etc., that follows from the very act of knowing. That I know myself, when I reflect upon my acts of knowing, I know that what I'm doing is apprehending a sensible singular, or a set of sensible singulars, or a phantasm. That I am focusing on that. That is the object of my knowledge. But in my act of knowing, I am universalizing. I'm doing something that can't be limited to merely material things. So in that very operation of the intellect upon sensible things and knowing them, we have combined there the immateriality of the intellectual operation itself with its dependence upon phantasm for the object. 
So it's not some abstract, ad hoc attempt to put things together, but rather these two things are found in any honest reflection upon my very act of knowing the external world. Now, the difficulty that arises from here for Aquinas is the following. If the intellect is separable, right, if it subsists, we gave a fairly technical argument some lectures ago for the subsistence of the intellect. It ran like this, right? The first premise was whatever has an operation proper to itself subsists. The intellect has an operation proper to itself in which the body does not share. Therefore, the intellect subsists. Now, if something subsists, it is not subject to corruption. So if it subsists in itself, right, not as a composite liable to corruption by the separation of the parts. Now, if the intellect subsists, Aquinas argues very quickly, the intellect must be incorruptible. And so we have an argument for the immortality of the soul. All right, seems very neat, very nice. Aquinas will go on to say, in spite of this argument for the immortality, the incorruptibility of the intellect, meaning that it can survive bodily death, that the intellect remains a weak power. The intellect is not an angel, even in this condition. It remains a much weaker intellectual power than that of the angels, or especially of God. It can exist separate from the body. It's incorruptible. The problem that arises from the Aristotelian context within which Aquinas is working, where the soul is formed of the body, it naturally knows sensible things by apprehending universals in the phantasms, is once separated from the body, how does the intellect know? Aquinas even puts it a little more starkly than this when he asks the question whether the intellectual soul separated from the body, whether it can know anything at all. And he's going to argue yes to that, but only after, with a great deal of difficulty and attempts struggling to sort of clarify how this is possible. What he says initially in response to this question is, if we had taken the view of Plato, where the intellect is simply united to the body as mover to moved, it would be very easy to say that the intellect could know. In fact, we could say that the intellect, with respect to its knowing, would be much better off separate from the body. Because the body seems, on this Platonic view, only to impede our acts of knowledge. And that it's in fact by sort of liberating ourselves from the constraints of the senses that we come to apprehend directly the intelligible order. So that, on Plato's view, the separation of the intellect from the body seems to be a kind of liberation, the culmination of what the intellect has been longing for all along. It can now gaze, according to its proper lights, upon the intelligible things themselves without the obstacle of the body and the senses. Now Aquinas quickly, as he has done before, says, well, the problem with that view, however, is that it cannot explain why the intellectual soul should ever have been united to the body in the first place. That is, it cannot explain how this union is good not just for the body, but also for the intellect. And if we can't explain that, we have a problem if not with the nature of human beings, then ultimately with why God would have created beings who would more appropriately have been created simply as intellectual substances separate from the body. Some early Christian thinkers like Origen wanted to talk to some extent about the soul through the fall sort of lapsing into a body. But that makes the body a kind of punishment for the soul, not its appropriate union, right? It's not appropriately united to the body. It's rather a kind of punishment. And indeed Plato himself sometimes talks about a kind of imprisonment in the body so that the art of philosophy is the art of dying to the body. And certainly Aquinas thinks that if we're talking about inordinate passions of the body, 
then philosophy is, to some extent, the art of learning to die to those things. But Aquinas doesn't think that the culmination of philosophy is a denigration of the body. Indeed, we've seen in some detail how he talks about the dignity and beauty and order and intelligibility of the body with respect to the intellectual soul. So this line of reasoning is for a number of good reasons not open to Aquinas, that platonic answer to this question. So what does Aquinas say? Well, he says the following about this. We already have arguments that the intellect is subsistent, that it's incorruptible. And he says, well, we should put it this way. There are two modes of knowing. One, in the body, through phantasms. Two, out of the body, through intelligible species. Now, without any further clarification, it might seem that Aquinas is trying to trick us here a bit, or to do what it seems can't be done. That is, to take a kind of Aristotelian view of knowledge while we're in the body and to slap on top of that a Platonic view of how we know once we're separate from the body. But of course, that raises the problem of how it could be one intellectual soul that's operative in these two places in the same way. And so what Aquinas says, first of all, about this is that this is only possible because the intellect, once separated from the body, is given by the divine light an influx of intelligible species. So there has to be something over and above our natural way of knowing that's introduced here for the intellect to know at all. And indeed, he will state that this separation of the soul, the separate status of the soul outside of the body after death is beyond, in a way, the nature of the soul. It's not what is most appropriate to the soul. And even that separated intellectual soul, as he calls it, still retains a kind of natural inclination to the body. This is not Plato's view, right? Because this is not the view that the intellect is liberated when it's separate from the body and is finally free to pursue its direct contact with intelligibles. Right? It's rather that the intellect appropriately knows and is appropriately united to the body and has a kind of inclination toward that body to be naturally united to it. Furthermore, this knowledge is confused and vague because this sort of knowledge is not the sort of knowledge that is most appropriate to the nature of our intellect. The most appropriate sort of knowledge is in the body through phantasms. That's what is most in accord not just with our body, not just with the composite, but with the intellectual soul itself, which is so weak in comparison with the angels that once it's separate, and is in some sense akin to the angels, that weakness means that the knowledge it has by intelligible species directly, which is what the angels have, is confused and vague. So that Aquinas answers this, says yes, it's possible for the intellectual soul to know when separate from the body, and here's how it can happen. But this is not necessarily a better state for the soul. Indeed, if we talk about a person, a human being, we cannot call a separate intellectual soul a person or a human being. That's always the composite. Now, if you weren't able to bring God and finally revealed theology, Christian theology, into this, you would be left with the kind of darkness and obscurity that Aristotle is left with at the end of his De Anima. You seem to be pulled by the very facts of our knowing, by the very nature of the human intellect and our composite nature. You seem to be pulled in two directions seem to be pulled by the immateriality and incorruptibility of the intellect to say, yeah, it can go on existing. It's immortal. But yet, the very fact that the intellectual soul is naturally united to the body, that its proper objects of knowing are sensible things in the sensible world, this seems to pull us back from embracing with any strong conviction 
the idea that the intellect could exist and operate separately from the body. So we seem from an Aristotelian, that is from a natural philosophic perspective, we seem to be pulled in two directions. And philosophy here seems to culminate in a kind of uncertainty. I mean, Aristotle could say, yeah, that's possible, but I don't know how that's precisely going to happen when the intellect is separated from the body or whether it could happen. This is, I think, a remarkable instance of where the questions that arise at the pinnacle of philosophy, that is, at the peak of philosophy. This is one. Another one would be arriving at the end of Aristotle's metaphysics at the existence of God, but not knowing much about that God and realizing that this would be the most desirable thing to be known by any human being, where we seem to be left with a knowledge that points us in a certain direction and that we can be reasonably confident about that knowledge, and yet there's this gap. There's a kind of uncertainty, a kind of limit to philosophy and to natural reason itself. And we can see here the brilliance of Aquinas later in the Summa when he takes up more explicitly theological matters. The way philosophical puzzles, philosophical difficulties at the peak of philosophical inquiry where we've attained a lot and yet we seem to be left right when we're most enlivened, right? The questions about God, the immortality of the soul, as we'll see in a moment, human freedom. We seem to be left at the pinnacle of philosophic discourse with a kind of obscurity, with a limit. And what Aquinas will say about this, what he seems to be at least implicitly arguing, is that philosophical puzzles and difficulties are resolved by revealed truth. We've been doing almost purely philosophy throughout these lectures. This is not to deny then that philosophy can achieve anything. It's not to deny that. But it's to say that what it achieves finally leaves us wanting more and with more questions perhaps than answers at the pinnacle of philosophical discourse. Briefly here at the end, how is it to step into theology for the moment? How is it that revealed truth, according to Aquinas, solves this particular difficulty of the soul and body, the incorruptibility of the intellect, its relation to the body? Well, we have in the Christian tradition a claim not just about the immortality of the soul, but about the resurrection of the body. And Aquinas takes this to be, right, I mean, the resurrection of the body is something promised to us in the New Testament. And it is not worked out with Aristotle's difficulties or Plato's difficulties directly in mind. But Aquinas finds here a kind of marvelous way through revealed truth of resolving the difficulties that are left over from Aristotle. What I was just saying about the difficulty in Aristotle which is that we seem to be pulled in two directions. On the one hand, the immateriality of the intellect leads us to think it's subsistent and incorruptible. On the other hand, how could it possibly know apart from the body? The resurrection of the body, something that from a Greek standpoint, at least from a Platonic standpoint, is a rather bizarre notion, an odd notion, almost an inconceivable notion. And yet there it is at the heart of Christian revelation. Not just our souls, but our bodies will be resurrected. This is a way of saying that beyond death, this union that constitutes the human person, no part can constitute the human person, the soul alone or the body alone, right, constitutes a human being. It's that composite, that the resurrection of the body bridges this gap and resolves that difficulty. So we find here, Aquinas thinks, a kind of remarkable example of the way revelation assists and perfects human reason in its operation and its thinking about the most difficult questions that we encounter as human beings. And we will see in the next and final lecture how it is that something similar occurs with the issue of human freedom for Aquinas. So we have now finished our general discussion of human knowledge 
and returned once again to the problems of soul and body and attempted to give some sort of initial response to the difficulties raised by these vexing questions that every serious philosophy has to encounter. And we will turn in the next lecture to the topic of human freedom. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.